Welcome to the Scale Up Your Business podcast. In this podcast, we talk about what it takes to go from startup to scale up and beyond. How to significantly grow your business, create freedom, build wealth, and live life on your terms. Featuring some very special guests and experts to give you advice and direction on your journey. And now, introducing your host, entrepreneur, investor, and scale-up specialist, Nick Bradley. Hello, everyone. Nick Bradley here. Welcome to another episode of Scale Up Your Business. I am delighted to be here again. And like every Thursday, it's another awesome interview with an amazing guest. Today's topic is all things franchising. Now, I try and blends the topics that I talk about quite a lot so that I'm not repeating myself and we're not just talking about marketing and mindset and sales and all that stuff. And as you always know, I like to bring people on who are experts in their field. So today I'm delighted to have on Scale Up Your Business, Lance Grawlick. Now he is the founder and CEO of Ion Franchising and they are the industry leading franchise consultancy and development group and they actually represent something like 500 franchise brands across 90 different categories. And what Lance does is he helps prospective entrepreneurs find their perfect franchise for free. And he also assists independent business owners in creating a franchise system. So he started out in the family business on Wall Street after receiving an economics degree. But he, je- he then joined TGI Fridays, like the massive franchise that is in Phoenix, Arizona. And he was a key executive there. But he was effectively vital in the growth of that franchise to it becoming a 225 million organization. So, you know, huge amount of experience in that. So he's been involved in other brands as well, like Wingstop and Krispy Kreme Donuts. And he has created countless startup brands, as I said, uh, actually known as being one of the industry leading donut experts. (laughs) The thing about franchising that I love personally is that you can go into a business that has all of its processes set up, it has its brand, you know, it's it's very much, you know, the things that lots of startup founders struggle with, those problems, if you like, or those headaches are solved if you acquire a franchise or come into a franchise. Um, And then, of course, it's all about what you do with it, how well you run the business, how good you are as an operator, how well you can lead and manage teams. So I wanted to bring Lance on because, as I said, I haven't covered this topic before. And I think it's an opportunity now as we think about what's going to happen sort of as we come out of COVID, people want to become entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurship is not just about startup. It's about all sorts of different things, which includes acquisitions and franchises. So there we have it. It's a great conversation. He's a lot of fun. Welcome to Scale Up Your Business, Lance Rollick. Okay. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another live show of Scale Up Your Business. Another week, another amazing guest. So today I would like to welcome Lance Grawlick. Have I pronounced it right, Lance? Perfect. Welcome to Scale Up Your Business, sir. Well, thank you, Nick. Thanks for having me. Now, before we do a bit of an intro to what you do, we've got to talk about the amazing shirt. Now, I think, are you are you actually in Las Vegas today? I am in Las Vegas today. Uh, Just got back from New York, but I'm in Las Vegas. So there you go. So everyone, everyone I know who's been to Vegas, I spent something like 13, 13 consecutive years I traveled to Vegas for a conference called SEMA when I used to work in that sort of trade a long time ago. Everyone just dresses cool, man. And honestly, there's going to be more people wanting that shirt of yours, the glowing silver shirt. 
uh, as opposed to what we're going to get into today. So we're going to have to kind of get them get them on track through our conversation. We'll have to add it to the Nick Bradley collection online. Oh, there you go. You know what? I, I need it. I need as much help as I possibly can with my fashion sense. <laughs> um, so Lance, right, is the maestro of franchising. Um, there are some brands that we are going to talk about today, which are iconic, uh, iconic franchise brands globally. And to be frank, you know, probably a somewhat, uh, and you're a humble guy, Lance, but, you know, you've been at the, uh, the forefront of some of these huge empires in terms of their ideation, scaling them up. Uh, all those things. So it's an absolute delight having you on the show so we can get into a topic which, to be frank, we have not covered on Scale Up Your Business before. Awesome. Cool. So let's get into it, mate. So let's uh, let's kind of understand a little bit of your background and experience. So take us through your journey into what you do now and uh, and some of the brands that you've worked in. Or worked you know, with. Nick, some of the great guests you've had in the past, uh, <clears throat> you know, we all start is this something, uh, is this nature versus nurture? How do people become entrepreneurs? Why does everyone not have a real job, so to speak? Uh, <laughs> and on my journey at a young age, I think my father determined that I was unemployable. And I think the reason he figured that out at an early age was both of my grandfathers were incredibly successful entrepreneurs. Uh, one of which, uh, straight out of Poland, uh, we couldn't quite understand, but he, you know, understand anything he ever said, it seemed, but he built a supermarket empire throughout Brooklyn and Queens. And, uh, but nevertheless, I knew I wanted to be my own boss, but I also knew that I needed to get that, that real hands-on education. Uh, I started off in finance. Uh, Dad and his brother were on Wall Street. In fact, Dad was a CPA and followed his older brother, uh, on Wall Street, and uh, and Dad became a partner in uh, the largest over-the-counter trading house on Wall Street in New York City, of course, in the financial district, Wall Street, and uh, and I followed him. Did that throughout the summers, straight out of college with that, my economics degree. And I realized within a short period of time, because I could, I could do anything I wanted to do. Uh, you know, we all know most people wherever they grow up, they stay. Um, and I, I didn't, and I, I chose to spread my wings and I got involved with another family member who was quite successful in tech before anybody did that. Uh, he made his money in the seventies when, uh, analog phones became, you know, when, when digital. I was going to say, what was tech in the seventies? I mean, <laughs> well, there you go. Now, you know, analog okay, phones went digital. He made a fortune and he wanted to build a billion dollar restaurant company. And he said, I heard you're bored on Wall Street. Come join me. I just bought a franchise called TGI Fridays. And I want to build that into a behemoth brand in the, throughout the United States. I want to be the largest franchisee. And I want to see if I could build a billion-dollar restaurant company. Now, keep in mind, this is 1988, 89, 89. I was just out of college. So... I helped him with that. And before you know it, five years later, through acquisitions, through new store openings, we got up to about $225 million a year. And in 89, that was a pretty good feat, given that a beer, a pint, was <laughs> probably 250 not on happy hour in the old days. And what is it today in the U.S.? Probably five, six, seven bucks. Yeah, so, it's about the same in pounds over here. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's um, I mean, first, let's just stop there for a second, just so I, otherwise you're going to kind of have all these amazing stories and I'm going to forget <laughs> where to come back in. But TGI, TGI Fridays, I've had many a wing and a beer there. 
Um, it's a brand that's you know pretty much global, certainly in the UK as it is in the US. Um, that's an amazing thing to have uh, on the resume just to start off with. So I do want to kind of go back and sort of unpack a little bit of your experience in that scale up, let's call it, um, in a second. But um, just let's continue and then we'll jump back to that. Sure. So, well, first of all, with TGI Fridays, I know part of what we'll have to get into is, you know, the trajectory of great brands. Um, you know, why is TGI Fridays today not like it was back then? Because when I was with TGI Fridays, things were made from scratch. And, you know, there was a, a lot of involvement in prep in the kitchen. And, you know, again, without getting into the minutiae of it. But I, after that, I was there about five years. I, I felt like I learned as much as I could. Uncle Stephen went back to uh, Asia to go build another company. Uh, that's when he finally got into uh, wireless modems. I think he was part of the first group that did a wireless modem for a laptop. Remember that, Nick? I just turned 54 two days ago. So I guess I'm 46 to, I and I'm thinking, I'm thinking, you know, I'm not that far behind. And I'm thinking <laughs> <laughs> sometimes technology advancements just kind of creep by you, though, and you kind of forget what it was like beforehand. So it's interesting to reminisce. But wow. Absolutely. So for me, I knew I wanted to do my own thing. Um, and then I started consulting and then eventually fell into, you know, another another family friend, interestingly, was the second franchisee for Krispy Kreme Donuts. Wow. And he was a successful investment banker that had, you know, looked around for opportunities. And he, you know, in the South, he kept coming across this hot glazed donut and said, I, I have to franchise this thing. And, and Krispy Kreme was not franchising in those days. But he got on the list and he eventually became the second franchisee of, of Krispy Kreme. And, and I joined him at some point. In the beginning, I was doing too well where I was in the hotel business and consulting. And eventually I joined him. But, you know, these were just parts of my journey that were a lot of fun. And I get bored easily. I need, <laughs> I need to be creating. My license plate on my car today is still creator. I love creating. I feel like so many people can maintain. I'm not a maintainer. I'm a grower and I'm a doer and I love to get my hands dirty. So that's. Yeah, that's no, it's, if, you, if you ever um, have studied any of the stuff that John Demartini talks about, he says, find your highest values, the stuff that you enjoy doing that doesn't feel like work. And that's where you have your most success. That, so that's well, and to that exact point, I've run into countless people that are much older than me that have always told me the same thing. And some of this advice has been unsolicited. Never retire. Do exactly what you did, what you just said. Find your path and what you enjoy, and you'll never work a day in your life. And I will never retire. I love what I do. And, so and you know. So true. Well, let's let's jump into um, TGI Fridays for a sec because and also remember I'm a novice here on franchising. That's why I wanted to bring you on to have a conversation. Sure. To, to also talk a little bit just about the background of franchising. And maybe I don't want to go into a history lesson. It's not going to serve people, but you know, your experience in that just to understand it. But what what actually is franchising? Is my first question. Well, franchising. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, what is franchising and and why, you know, why has it been such a successful growth strategy? So I just want to understand those two things before we delve into a bit more of what you've said previously. Sure. So franchising is a legal relationship where you are licensing a name. You're actually licensing a trademark and you're able to use that name if you're going to be following this system and procedures. 
and you are going to have to follow this system. You know, the, the definition of franchising versus, let's say, licensing, with which a lot of yep. people are familiar with, the biggest legal definition has to do with control. In franchising, there has to be a reasonable and actually a substantial amount of control exercised. For example, McDonald's. Everybody seems to know McDonald's. If you become a McDonald's franchisee, they're going to approve everything. They're going to tell you where you're going to buy all your products from. They're going to tell you what the uniforms are. They're going to tell you exactly how to train your employees. Um, so there's not much room for your opinion, if you will. <laughs> I was so, going to ask, where's the room for creativity? Well, <laughs> you, know, you can create, it's different, isn't it? It, it, there is no room for creativity, but where you can get creative is on the human resources side of things. You okay. can take the, the training system from McDonald's. And if you believe that some McDonald's maybe don't have the best service, in my opinion, and others do. And, and that's the difference is which franchisee is, is all over it. You know, why are some drive throughs at McDonald's a little bit faster than others? Um, so you have the right to be the best. Some are just, you know, in every franchise brand, there's that bottom 10% and there's top, there top, that top 10%. So that's the difference. It also brings up the question about where can you um, innovate and improve within um, a franchise model? Because clearly, you know, the brands, I take it, is you, know, you can't probably change the brands. I imagine, um, obviously different things in different regions and geographies, but I suppose it must come under processes and systems and, and as you said, customer experience and those sort of areas. Boy, you, you, there's a lot to unpack in that little statement that you just brought up because I'll give you a perfect example. When I joined Wingstop in the earlier days with Wingstop and I got voted as, uh, I, vote, I was voted on the Franchise Advisory Council by my peers. And then before you know it, I was president of the Franchise Advisory Council. And there was a lot going on with Wingstop. So conversely, look at McDonald's. If you were going to be a McDonald's franchisee today and you were joining the Franchise Advisory Council, you know, there's always stuff to do. But when you have a very old brand, established brand, very much rooted you know, in a deep foundation, there's not a lot to change. Uh, unless, of course, you're, you're, you're lagging in sales and, and have same-store sales declines. But with Wingstop, there was an awful lot to do. And you know, there was a lot of impact that we had. So that's one of the discussions I have with people when they're looking to find a franchise. I represent more franchise brands today than anybody, anywhere. And you know, with that, those 600 plus brands, there are people that have an appetite for younger emerging brands where, to your point, Nick, they can really make an impact like I was able to do at Wingstop. And I assume that was the same when you went into TGI Fridays as well, because oh, you were at the very beginning of that, weren't you? So what that is now, the foundations of what it, you know, you must have helped create those back then. Well, TGI Fridays was about 65 when it started. Alan Stillman started it in New York City. Um, I was there 25 plus, you know, well, 1989 or so. Um, we were the largest franchisees. So, yes, we did have an we, we did carry a lot of weight. Um, but when we were there, everything was really good. What happened at TGI Fridays midstream was the CEO and the president, two different gentlemen, had left. And that's a whole other story on, you know, why why brands start to 
to decline. Why brands start to fail. You know, we, we all know the good to great book, right? Well, what yeah. happens when you're already great and you're the leader and you lose you lose it, you know? And and they did. They followed Chili's and Applebee's. And let, let me let me tell you a story, Nick, as to what I think was symptomatic of the downfall of TGI Fridays that I actually witnessed in the test kitchen in Dallas, Texas. I was I was at a quarterly meeting where we were talking about menu rollouts. And I was there representing our group and the corporate executive chef for TGI Fridays brought out a plate, several plates of French fries. French fries were a staple. They were fresh cut fries in the old days of TGI Fridays and people loved them. Special seasoning that we put on them. And I I see the fries and I I said, is this a new fry? And he said, taste it. And I, I tasted it and he goes, isn't it almost as good as our current fresh fry? And I said, yes, it's almost as good, but it's not as good. And that was a frozen fry that they had been testing for a while behind the scenes. And they were doing the unveiling to us, basically ramming it down our throats to say, this is what we decided. And now we're going with this particular product. So sorry. And I'm telling you, that was the first sort of problem, if you will, that surfaced when I said, "Uh uh-oh, these guys are following Applebee's and Chili's and mm. are coming in, you know, pre-cooked chicken before you know it. I mean, it was just, it was awful. Well, I can see this, you know, I can see this is where the problem lies in this world because you've got this, the quality and the standard piece here, and then you've got the scalability and the efficiency piece here. And you'll know this better than anybody. That's a really interesting balance to try and get right. And there must be some decisions that absolutely enable the scalability and they're good decisions. And there are some which are almost, we're we're never going to change that. (laughs) You know, Nick, I I work with a lot of bright guys in private equity that invest in a lot of publicly traded restaurant companies. And, and, And these are questions that we go through all the time because they get the TGI Friday story. They know that brands like, remember Lone Star Steakhouse? I don't know if they ever made it. No, no, no. I've I've spent a lot of time traveling across the US. I think I've eaten at every, probably one of your franchise. I'm sure I have. Well, good. (laughs) Lone Star Steakhouse, I want to say, had 30 quarters of same store sales increases. And then the bottom fell out. And people were scratching their head as to why. Well, I, I could tell you a whole host of reasons why. They never should have made it that far, but they did. And then the bottom just completely fell out. And you're 100% right. It's about consistency. It's about quality. It's about the leadership. And, you know, there are a lot of brands. Buffalo Wild Wings is another one. There's a lot of people used to snicker about, about Buffalo Wild Wings food quality, but for many years, they got away with it because they were unique in their space. They didn't have major competition. And even prior to the pandemic, uh, of course, they had they had all kinds of issues because there were people that were going towards fast casual, you know, the, the wing stops of the world. They were ordering to go. They were ordering online. And that's, you know, that's when you miss, you know, you jump the shark. You're missing, you're missing it. You know, you're missing a key move that you have to make. You know, why has Apple been so successful over the years? They've been able to forecast and understand what the consumer wants. Well, they're extremely wild wings missed it. They're externally focused. They're looking at the market. They're looking at dynamics. And and one of the things I talk about quite a lot, you know, on this podcast and just through other commentary that I put out there is the pace of change right now 
not just because we're recording this through COVID and there's a lot of disruption going on, but the pace of change just generally, societal impact, economic, digital, all of those things, means that you could have a great idea and within 12 months that idea could be obsolete because the market or your target customer has moved to something else. And a lot of people, they get they navel-gaze, I think, is the traditional way of saying it as opposed to you know, having an outside perspective. That's absolutely correct. And if we have time to talk about it, we talk about the environmental impact. I call it the environmental impact of COVID on brands that maybe were performing well prior to COVID. And, and while there's plenty that are having problems during COVID, there are others that really, like I have a group that did face-to-face -face business networking type functions prior to COVID. And they created their own Zoom-like platform because they didn't like Zoom for online networking. They spent about a quarter of a million dollars developing their own, and it's outrageously successful, and they're doing better than ever. Well, I mean, the, the classic example in the, um, in the personal development space that we see is um, Tony Robbins did this. I know the numbers. He made $420 million on the relaunch of one of his events that he used to be capped at, I think it was 10,000 people in, a, in an event uh, arena because he invested all this money in this wall, if you've seen it. It's incredible. I've heard um, about it. It's amazing. I've never, I haven't actually participated in this, but I know a few people have. But $400 million, he wasn't making close to that beforehand. Right. Because amazing. he had something like 35,000, 40,000 people could now participate. Incredible. It's amazing, isn't it? But that's, yeah. that's really thinking about the opportunities that present themselves through change and through what could be considered disruption. Um, but you know, really powerful. Well, let's let's get into um, what I'd love to do. I'm going to ask you some questions, if I can, just about sure. franchising uh, and the opportunities that are around it. So, if I'm an investor, uh, or if I'm someone who is thinking, well, should I start a business? Should I buy a business? Or should I invest in a franchise? What are some of the the questions or considerations that I should be evaluating if I'm if I'm at that space right now? Yeah, well, first of all, I always tell people, I said, look, if you have a burning desire to create your own business and you feel like it's something that needs to be born, so to speak, go for it. Do it if you're well capitalized and, you know, go for it. However, the average person does not have a burning desire to create anything in particular. They've maybe invested quite a bit in Wall Street or in the stock market, I should say, depending on where you are, quite a bit in real estate. And then after that, franchising seems to be the biggest thing going. And it is an unknown to so many people. The first question I ask investors is, are you looking to, do, to be active in a business like a franchise? Because believe it or not, Nick, we have quite a few businesses where you have to be an owner-operator. Perfect example, Fast Signs. Amazing, amazing brand, been around forever, great performer, but you have to be there day to day as an owner operator. So that's part of the franchise agreement. That that is. You, wow. okay. you will have to be an owner operator for that particular brand. Now, there are some brands, I have quite a few home healthcare brands, which is an outrageously successful uh, model and it's projected to grow for the next 30 plus years. In fact, Nick, in the US, there's the majority of them that I have, I have about 30 home healthcare brands. They're all owned by private equity groups because that's where the money is. So in that case, most of them are also an owner operator model. However, some have realized in their business plan, you know, there's quite a few investors. We could figure out how to create an 
semi-absentee owned model where uh, a guy like Nick Bradley can buy a franchise, put a manager in place, and, and we'll allow that. But I do have quite a few that are executive level or, or completely absentee-owned businesses where people in the UK can invest. Uh, I have, I have a, a commodity-type uh, system that people use their technology and created these water stations that you see everywhere, uh, at least throughout the U.S., and, and I, I know people putting a million dollars into this investment. It's 100% absentee owned. And returning 18 to 20%, plus you have wonderful write-offs because you're buying equipment. Well, yeah, and, and also back to your point beforehand, sometimes people don't, don't want to have to think or create too much. They want something turnkey. Um, and, and, and as you know, Nick, though, there, there are people that can't be hands-off. They have to be involved. And then you have other people that say, no, 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 I have too much going on. I need to be 100% hands-off. What do you got? And, and, and have I, I have it all. Uh, so of your 600 or so brands, you've got a mix that have obviously different different rules, operating models, et cetera, which can then fit, I suppose, the requirements of someone who's looking to get into this. A absolutely. I have a guy in Atlanta right now who – is looking to get into a restaurant concept and was about to sign with one restaurant concept when a guy he met that knows me said, you got to call Lance first before you sign anything. And I told him, I said, look, the brand you're going to join is, is good. However, you want to be an absentee owner. That brand is not going to allow you to be an absentee owner, no matter what they're telling you right now. And he goes, yeah, I'm feeling that pressure from them that I need to quit my main gig here, which gives me a lot of capital. And, and I said, look, I have restaurant brands that are completely 100% absentee owned, which means they put certain technology and systems in place to teach people. In fact, some of these restaurant brands, you'll be shocked. They actually have a system where you can hire people that are trained managers for that particular brand to run your operation. Believe well, it or that's not. What I, that's why I wanted to go with this a little bit because I've got seven companies. I've got three that have been bought by acquisition. So I buy businesses. And then what I do is I put in a, a I'm going to call it a management team, but I put in a general manager basically. And therefore I can run those businesses strategically. You know, every, every quarter we have a planning period, if you like, but then very, very much weekly, the businesses are run on metrics, right? So I don't have to be involved. It's owner investor status. Absolutely. Um, which I like, right? Because I've got other things going on. I can get to do this and it's, it's all cool. But in, in that model, it's interesting because I was thinking that, let's say, for example, I wanted to buy into a franchise. I would want to be able to employ a team of people all the way from a general manager down to, you know, the guy who's flipping the burgers or however, you, <laughs> however it's right. done. Um, or, and, or the robot that's going to be flipping the burgers. Well, the I was going to say, I was going to say the machine that does it. But um, but that's interesting because I know a lot of people who listen to this show are in the same space. They're looking for things like that. So what you're saying is those opportunities do exist. Absolutely. Um, okay. Cool. Absolutely. And what's the and and just back to my initial kind of question, just to be a bit more specific. Why would I choose if I again back to I don't I don't necessarily want to start a business I could buy a business I know that I want to move into a more entrepreneurial space um, and I've got some investment to be able to provide into that Why would I choose franchising What what are the characteristics that make it an attractive choice The the short answer is that it's it's a safer bet It's an absolute mm -hmm. safer bet And you know 
quick story. I got a I got a family friend that left banking, very successful. He knew he wasn't done. He could have retired, but said, you know, I, I should I should invest in something. But he didn't have a burning desire to create something on his own. He looked around at different franchises and he settled on a franchise hair salon chain. Now, guess what? You're going to laugh when I tell you this, Nick. You know, you have some nice hair over there, right? This guy doesn't have any hair. In fact, he hasn't even needed a haircut since college, probably. So he's not even a customer. And he doesn't know how to cut hair, but he became an owner of franchise hair salons. Today, he has uh, number 20 just open. Number 20 just open. He's been doing it 12 years. He invested, let's talk about real dollars, 155, 160,000 per location. He nets about 75,000 per location. So he can get his money back in two years or so. And so his cash flow today is a million and a half dollars. And right now he doesn't do much. He works 10 hours a week if he wants to, but he has a whole team in place. That's what franchising is all about. He never dreamed he would be in the hair, in the salon business or the franchising business. Yet here he is and his life is completely changed. And so in that situation, because I think, I think again, there's some people in this, you know, listen to this podcast who will be in that space. What would someone like that, you know, what would their week be like? You know, because uh, obviously they've got 20, right? So yes. I take, he's, he's, he's got to be running the business by the businesses by metrics. And he's also going to have to be satisfying, I assume, any of the franchise agreements and just making sure there's layers of governance and things like that above, above what he's doing. Well, you know, there, there is a lot of common sense in franchising. When you're a new franchisee, you're under a microscope. Is this guy Nick going to perform the way we expect? Seems like a very bright guy. But once you get over the hump, so to speak, they leave you alone because you just said it. It's all about the metrics. What are your sales? Are you, you know, are you any franchise I've ever been involved with? I, I can easily say I was in the top 5% of operators. And so needless to say, nobody would ever bother me. In fact, they're going to call me and we're going to talk about best practices. Why is Lance's labor better than everybody else's and and try to reverse engineer things? But yes, it's run by metrics. At the end of the day, you know, the day in the life of a franchisee, once you've you know made it in multi-unit operations, is what you want it to be. Some people are quite involved and other people are completely hands-off. Interestingly, Nick, the franchise that I'm talking about. If you were going to buy one today, they don't want you to be hands off. They want you to be an owner operator like my friend was in the beginning. He was involved, even though he didn't know how to cut hair. He was there. He was there greeting people, maybe playing cashier, you know, ringing people up at the end and and sweeping floors, you know, cleaning windows. But a year and a half later, I mean, all he bought was one to begin with to feel it out. And then he bought a couple more. And, and before you know it, he did a big multi-unit agreement to basically take the rest of the, the area. So everybody has a different appetite. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. Um, there are people that go all in and there are people that don't go all in until they, they feel a lot better. And you certainly understand that in the risk tolerance department, I'm sure. I do. Absolutely. And that, and that was my, my inkling when you were about to say it in terms of um, the security around this, because again, the brand, the processes, all the stuff that can take that ignition in a business that can take, you know, where the risk lies, product market, exactly. that, that's taken care of. So you're coming in at the point where you can 
effectively scale it out. And the question me, for you, sorry, give me. Yeah, but let me get, let me give you this way too. You know, Tony Robbins always said model success, you know, and success leaves clues. I mean, that's what franchising is. Anybody that comes to me, I want to show them the profit path. And every franchise brand needs to show their franchise disclosure document and present that to prospective franchisees. And there are financial representations in there. It might show margins, it might show sales, but the validation step at the last step before you choose a franchise model is you get an, you get an opportunity to call existing franchisees. They'll give you the phone numbers of the franchisees and you'll be able to validate. So Nick, tell me, as a new franchisee, I understand you net 75,000 per store, another franchisee told me. You know, and you start to understand that profit path. Where else could you do that? If you were starting your own business, it's all a pro forma. It's not well, reality. No, the levels, the levels, one of the things I talk about is predictability in business. And you know, you're you're creating certainty and predictability just because again, the model's proven, the processes are proven, you've got testimonials, the whole piece. I get Absolutely. It. Absolutely. So question I've got for you, because you said beforehand you were in the top 5% of the franchises that you personally were involved in. What was it that you did which made you so effective as a franchise owner? You know what? I'm a detail guy. And, you know, I have always believed in, the, in understanding the layers to a business. You know, there are some people, especially in the restaurant business, there are some people that maybe will produce great food and keep a clean operation, but they really are not focused on customer service. I can't tell you why, but my places always had the best customer service, the best staff. In fact, the first book I'm ever going to write is probably going to be on hiring for the hospitality industry because people have always asked me, where do you, where do you get these people? And the reality is that I actually find them. I don't just put ads out there. I, I, would, actually, imagine, I would imagine you create them as well. And by that, you might find some great people who've got the right attitude and aptitude to join you, but I'm sure there must be something you're doing around your leadership of them, which is uh, making them show up in the way that they are. That That's exactly right. As a matter of fact, a, a young lady on Facebook who used to work for me, I hired her when she was 14 years old and she just became uh, a physical therapist after all her schooling. She thanked me and tagged me on Facebook saying, if it wasn't for this boss, that I had when I was 14, I wouldn't understand about working with the public. I wouldn't understand, you know, work ethic and, and you know, the devil is in the details, so to speak. And, and she actually shouted out to me, why did I give it? But why did I give a 14 year old an opportunity? Because I saw something in her and it, it doesn't have to be much, but it has to be that eye contact, that ethic, work ethic, that desire to do better and to better someone's, you know, to better your life. And that's the sort of the wet clay that a sculptor can work with and, and turn people into an amazing employee. And she was one of them. She was one of the amazing young employees that I hired. And I didn't want to hire people with experience. I'd rather take a blank slate. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that advice is good advice for any business that's being built, to be frank, because a lot of the time, you know, founders are looking for people who have got extreme amounts of expertise, but quite frankly, they don't fit the cultures, the values of the company. So right. I take it in something like this, it's e even more important because 
you know, you have to live those values. And sometimes those values, I suppose, are defined, but then it's your um, definition and your expression of those values, which is going to make the difference. Absolutely. You you know, the last part of your the answer to your question is management by walking around. And that expression has been lost. But <laughs> in the restaurant business, management by walking around is the most effective way. And my team was always taught that. You know, I was in a restaurant the other day and, you know, when I was in New York and the service was horrible and I kept grabbing the manager and saying, I don't know, this is a nice steakhouse. And I said, I don't know where this server keeps going, but my mom needs an iced tea and we didn't get this. And that doesn't happen in my restaurants. And if it did, believe me, they'll be heck to pay uh, for the staff for not doing what they're supposed to. Yeah. You know, every business needs a sequence of service. Every hospitality business needs a sequence of service. What exactly, you know, you shoot for excellence and you fall short and at least you have greatness. Okay. I see too many businesses, especially in fast food that shoot for mediocrity and either hit it or fall short and have are, are pathetic. <laughs> I mean, you know, well, that good these days equals poor results. Great equals good, but outstanding is where everything should live. And yeah. and I think the best business owners, and I'm sure it would be applicable to franchising as anything else, have have pretty high standards, which which then come back to your point around details, because the details matter. They do matter. Absolutely, absolutely. Cool. All right. Well, listen, I want to go into a couple of um, other areas if we can. So Please. first and foremost, as, I just want to kind of, as people are listening to this, I'm sure people are kind of thinking, actually, I hadn't really thought about franchising, but perhaps this is something I should explore. And you said beforehand, you represent a whole heap of different brands. What's, what's the, the, let's say someone's got, you know, not a lot of money, but they want to get into franchising. Um, you know, they might have 50 grand or something like that to spend. Um, if someone came to you like that, where, how would you address that sort of brief? Would obviously there would you would you point them to a newer type of setup, or how does that all work? Well, it, it has to do with the first of all on my website. I should share this now. I was going to share it at the end, but it's important on my website. I have a pretty scientific assessment that industry experts have created, and that takes you about fifteen minutes to fill out, and it it leads me to understand what brands you are most compatible with based on your your skill set, your mindset, and uh, about 15 minutes to do it. It'll actually spit out brands specific to you based on the way you're answering these questions. And it's fairly accurate. However, the next part of that is what truly is your investment level? Now, some people call me and say, I, I, I want a brand that's $50,000. And I said, was that 50,000 cash you're investing? Would you be interested in a loan? Because in the U.S., you can do an SBA loan mm -hmm. yep. for $200,000 and you need a 25,000, 25,000, 25% down payment, which in that case would be $50,000. Some people aren't aware of that when they call me. Some people are. And they go, oh, yeah, no, I'm good with a, I'm good with a $200,000 loan and, and I have the $50,000 and hopefully a little more to live on in the meantime because you're going to need some more working capital. But the bottom line is uh, there is truly, and, I, and I, I don't say this lightly, there is truly a brand for everybody and every single investment level. Sometimes I'm dealing with younger folks um, that maybe don't have 
maybe all, all they have is 50,000 and I can find brands for them. However, they could buy what I call a starter franchise. Maybe it's not their ideal franchise that they really wanted, but it's a brand that they can start with at the moment and you know, sell it in a few years. I'll tell you a story. I have a crime scene cleanup franchise. Okay? My friend is president of that brand and he actually told me the story of a young guy, I think he was 25 when he started pursuing this brand saying, I need to be a franchisee. And all I have is about $30,000. Well, the brand is 83,000. That's what their package is today. Back then, I think it was about 75. Long story short, this gentleman got money from his family members and he figured out how to put this together and he became a franchisee. I think it was about five years later, after working his tail off, he sold his franchise for over a million dollars. And then he went on to do what he real things that he really wanted to do. Wow. Those are the stories I could tell you all day. This was just a young guy that, look, we all know that billionaires today are not the smartest people in the world. A lot of the smartest people in the world have never been an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs are just persistent and take action. Yeah, and that's what franchising is perfect for, is those people that want to just, just like the, the young gentleman that didn't even have a college education, just saw a system that he loved, that he knew he could follow, and he went for it. And you made a point there about um, exiting as well. So is that the typical route? So if someone buys a franchise and then they build it up to a certain level, the way out is then to sell it. And and how does that process work? Is, it, is, is there a certain amount of the actual franchise owner, as in the brand owner, who gets involved then at that stage? How, how does that all work? Great question. In every franchise agreement, there are rules on the exit. Uh, typically, a franchisor is going to have to approve whoever this franchise, their franchise brand is sold to. But uh, a lot of times, like when I exited Wingstop, they ended up buying, corporate ended up buying my stores and they still own them today. So the reason, the beauty of franchising is the market out there for franchises is quite robust. So if you're going to sell a franchise brand, especially multi-units, it's far easier than selling an independent concept. And the market, typically you're going to get four times cash flow when you sell a franchise. Some people tell you three to five times cash flow. Some business brokers will talk about uh, a percentage of, of sales. All that's garbage. It's a percentage of your EBITDA number, period. So I sold, I think, for 4.2 times cash flow to be exact. Uh, my wing stops. Um, so it is, you know, like my family friend with his franchise hair salons and a million and a half cash flow. Do the math on that. You're you're talking at least a six million dollar exit. And in the same way with buying and selling, let's say non-franchise businesses, the multiple goes up with scale. Absolutely. So, is that the same here? So if you've got more, it's going to be. You mentioned a multiple of six to seven on the on the bigger level there versus a four is that the well, same across most typically a multi-unit franchisee or a franchisee like i was on, on on several brands you're going to get three to five times cash flow 
Now, if you are a franchisor, I work with quite a few people that are setting up a franchise system. They have independent successful businesses, like many of your listeners probably, and they work through me to set up a franchise. A lot of those, even just prior to the pandemic, they could easily sell for 10 times cash flow as a franchisor, which is an enormous number. You know, if you start to calculate how many locations do I need to get open? And then that's why it becomes a game to some franchisors. At what point do you exit? Because if you have 50, how difficult is it to get to 100? And do, do the math on that multiple and what that now is, whatever that number is, depending on what industry you're in. Um, so there's there's quite a few that that really scale up. But, you, you know, look, the private equity groups that are buying franchises understand the simple math. You know, we have a regional brand. We want to take national. And, uh, you know, they have 150 locations now. We want to take them to 1,000. And, you know, what does that number look like? Well, in many cases, it's, it's actually an easier calculation to do for private equity than some of the more unknown brands that they may be investing in. Because, as you said beforehand, the scale creates that certainty, which decreases the risk. That's exactly right. 100%. Yeah. Um, okay, so what, I want to sort of go to the other end of this, if we can, because I get asked quite a bit. Um, people come to me and they want help with their businesses and they have an ambition to potentially franchise a business one day. How does that process work? So if someone's got, you know, they might have one business, uh, they've created a brand that potentially has the ability to have, a, a let's say, a multi-unit setup or whatever else. What's the beginning to go from that to a franchise model? Yeah, and, and I do that regularly, um, setting people up to franchise. I have um, a gentleman that has two different businesses who's outrageously successful, and uh, we're setting up two different franchise systems for him now uh, out, of, uh, out of New York. You know, it, it's all about the secret sauce, Nick, is what I always say. You know, are you franchisable? What are you doing that's different from everyone else? And I'll give you a live example. I have a, a young lady in the South who called me through a, a reference of someone else I set up to franchise. And she has these salon suites brands, uh, a brand. She has two, two corporate locations and interest from all kinds of people that want to buy a franchise. Well, she wasn't set up for franchising. Well, now she is. And when you look at the salon suite space, it's where, you know, you, you, you lease or buy a space and you, you as the owner end up just renting the space to other hairstylists or nail techs or whatever it might be. Well, most of the other salon suites brands, she understood that her secret sauce was the fact that she could figure out how to open it less expensive so the, the investment for a prospective franchisee, instead of being six to $800,000 to open one of these places, you know, might be 150. So without getting too much in the weeds on that, she was right. And that was the secret to her, is going to be the secret to her success. And her branding is quite unique as well. So, okay, but, good. so, but, it's so about, but it's about the secret sauce. What are you doing different from everybody else? What is your profit path? You don't have to divulge all of your numbers 
when you set up, but there's a legal process. You need a franchise disclosure document. You need a franchise agreement. You need a detailed operations manual, and you need support staff to help do this. Now, some of the founders I work with do this all themselves, and others don't. Others hire a complete team to do it all. But you can, for anyone who's interested in that, you can provide a service through what you do, which can take a brand that's unique, let's say memorable, remarkable, and and create maybe some of the processes around that that can potentially make it franchisable. Absolutely, one hundred. Absolutely, yeah. That's that's a word. And okay, absolutely. good. That's all right because there's there's a there's a, a, a some restaurants I'm in the process of uh, looking to acquire in Florida which we want to franchise. So we so we'll have a, a secondary conversation if that deal gets closed Perfect. in the next few weeks. <laughs> awesome. Well, listen, Lance, it's been great having you on. I mean, have we missed anything here? Because I wanted to, when I was preparing to speak to you, I wanted to talk about the opportunity for an entrepreneur or someone who wants to be more entrepreneurial is probably a better way of saying that. I wanted to cover the dynamics and the value behind franchising versus other options someone should be considering. I wanted to talk about how these things are valued and how you create scale, which we've covered. And I also wanted to talk about you know people who have brands that they may want to turn into franchises at some point, um, which we've covered. Have we missed anything? I think we covered it pretty well for round one. We definitely need a round two. But no, the, you know, look, there's so many misconceptions about franchising. Um, big investors out there sometimes tend to think, I, I don't want to be controlled. I don't want to jump into someone else's system. But the reality is franchises have the potential to make a lot of money with very little headache. And I, I think the first step always is for people just to reach out to me. I love jumping on great podcasts like yours because I get all kinds of people that reach out. Uh, just yesterday, I was on the phone with three different people that saw me on another recent podcast. And, you know, one of them was a business owner and, and he wants to franchise. And the other gentlemen were looking at becoming franchisees. So my services are free to discuss franchising, anything about franchising to start with. And I'm happy to help anybody. That's awesome. No, listen, I was excited to have you on, Lance, because I said this is a topic that's been on my mind, what, 120 episodes into Scale Up Your Podcast. But we've never, to be frank, I've never actually met anyone who's so focused and passionate about the subject as you are. So when oh, uh, when you were introduced, I thought, this is the guy. Finally, finally, yes. when someone asks about franchising, I can just point them to this episode and we're all good. Awesome. So listen, um, how you mentioned beforehand, people can obviously take that assessment when they go to your website, which sounds amazing. Uh, where else can people reach you, Lance? That's it. Just go to the website, ionfranchising.com, ionfranchising.com. My social media links are up there as well. Great. And if they want to buy one of those fantastic Las Vegas silver shirts, uh, just go to the resources section. No, <laughs> <laughs> I had to have some fun with that to finish off with, Lance. Love it. Thanks, Nick. All right. Thanks for coming on the show, mate. Very much appreciated. Thank you for having me. And there you have it, another episode of Scale Up Your Business. Thank you very much for listening. And if you haven't yet, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help the show become even better. And while you're there, make sure you hit that subscribe button to help you on your scale up journey. Now, perhaps you're thinking of growing and scaling your business. Perhaps now is the time. If that's you, then please check out suyb.global. That's where we have all of our programs, including the Growth Accelerator Partnership, the Maximize Value Partnership, all of our services, and of course, coaching and mentoring. Once again, be grateful, be brave, have faith, and show up. 
until next time.